Hello and welcome to Staying Connected. This is your host, Katie, and today I have Bridget with me. Hey, Bridget. Hi, Katie. I'm so excited to talk to you, for one. Um, as you know, we both have vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, so and this is the first time that we're really talking to somebody else that has it, right? Yes, and I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, so we were talking about you getting married in 2010. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I actually got married in the same year that I was diagnosed with this um, after a very, very extensive hospital stay. Um, You know, I wanted to, I was diagnosed with VEDS in February 2010 Mm -hmm. after um, an extensive emergency stay uh, over a dozen life-saving procedures. Um, and you know, after that I had to relearn to do things again. Um, one of which was walking. Um, you know, I'd been in the hospital for so long. I lost that. I don't know if it's muscle memory or ability. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to keep my original wedding date and make it down the aisle, and I am proud to say that I was able to walk um, down the aisle. That's amazing. So the the surgeries that you had, you said you had about a dozen surgeries before this? Yes, and I could name a bunch of them, (laughs) uh, but probably not all because, as you know, having VEDS, um, the doctors did not know that I had it at the time, so when... They actually went in with an angiogram to check out my fistula. So let's pause there. So what what is the fistula, and when did you have that first symptom of that? Okay, so it's called a carotid cavernous fistula, and my understanding of it um, is it's a bleed behind, um, you know, in the brain. It, mine was behind my left eye. And what kind of symptoms does that produce? So very late, um, it produces a swollen eye, pain in your eye, a beating in your head. Um, However, I went on for about six months with it, um, not knowing what was going on or not knowing what it was. Six months. Uh, So that was, is that in 2009? Yes. Uh, my, my very first symptom of the fistula probably started in the fall of 2009, and it was a sinus infection that would not go away. Um, I went to one ear, nose, and throat specialist after another. I was prescribed so many different medicines, and it just I just couldn't get rid of it. Um, And at one point, actually, I was hospitalized. And back in 2009, I don't know if anyone remembers, but swine flu was a big thing. Oh, yes, I do remember that. (laughs) And they actually quarantined me. They thought, so I told them, like, I have the sinus infection that won't go away. I have a beating in my head. Um, I also had, like, a lump um, over my eye. I don't know if it was like a protruding vein or something that 
Um, you know, and I remember my parents trying to explain to them, uh, you know, this is ridiculous. This is, you know, please do a full workup. And, you know, they did imaging, but they didn't do the right imaging. <laughs> so how old were you at this time? I believe I was about 22, 23. Okay. Um, so what kind of imaging finally revealed the carotid cavernous fistula? Um, it was, I believe, an MRI. Um, it was done by an ophthalmologist. I know that. Uh, I, I'll have to get the exact name of the imaging <laughs> because I just, I had so much stuff done. Yeah, it sounds um, like you've had a lot. From, yeah, from one... You know, and the opt- the first ophthalmologist thought I had diabetes. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, thinking what it could be. And I just remember, th- like, saying, oh, man, I really hope this isn't diabetes. And, you know, <laughs> later I found out what I really had. But so the doctor who found it, she was probably the most persistent doctor I've ever had. Uh, she said, she asked me, well, what kind of imaging have you had? You know, and I probably said like CAT scan, you know, x-ray. <laughs> and she said, well, that's not enough. Um, so she, you know, and she could not believe that the other doctors or the hospital did not do the correct, you know, more extensive imaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so she or that and when she got the results she said to me Bridget you have something that I've never heard of before it's called a carotid cavernous fistula you need to get to a major medical center I don't know what else to do except this is serious and you need to go like within the week wow so Um, where did you that that led you to the major medical center yeah what happened then so um, I called two major medical centers uh, where I lived. Uh, I lived about an hour from New York City at the time, mm-hmm. and the hospitals toward the city couldn't get me in. Um, so I went uh, upstate, and they got me in within the week, which was great because it, I was on break. Um, I was a teacher at the time. And we went to the neuro team and the neurosurgeon said, you know, you have the fistula. I don't know why. And my fiance at the time was with me and he said he has some sort of medical background. And he said, well, there's been no trauma. She hasn't been in a car accident. Why does she have this? Mm-hmm. And he didn't have an answer. You know, normally they will see patients who develop fistulas after a major, you know, a major car accident. Uh, but there had been no trauma to our knowledge. And he said, I'm going to do this routine procedure. It's called an angiogram. You know, they're safe. They're easy. We put a camera into the artery, I believe, you know, take a look at it. Um, at the fistula, and while we're up there, we will fix what we see is wrong. Right. And so I said, oh, great. You know, I have the time off from work. 
let's do this. At that time, my symptoms had going on, been going on for so long. Um, How long was it from when you started symptoms to when you had the angiogram? I'd say about six months or maybe even more. And they got worse over time. You know, um, my eye had been so red, swelling. My vision changed um, drastically. Mm-hmm. I always wore glasses or contacts, but my vision doubled. So, you know, it, things just weren't right. And mm-hmm. I just didn't feel well. Um, so, you know, we had no qualms about the angiogram. And I think it was scheduled for the very next day. Okay. So then during the angiogram, my major femoral arteries tore, including my aorta. Oh, my gosh. They didn't even get the camera or scope in very far until things started happening. Uh, That was when they called in the vascular team. And everything the vascular team tried to touch or fix presented another problem. So my vascular surgeon uh, said it was touch and go. They would, you know, they would quiet some problem and then another one would happen. Um, I actually uh, heard that from the first vascular surgeon that I saw. He told me that patients like me are their worst nightmares. (laughs) Yeah. So it sounds like that seems to be true in this case. Yeah. And... They just, they'd never seen anything like it. Um, You know, I know that you talk about it all the time. Our our arteries are like tissue, wet tissue paper. So. um, That's a good analogy. Yeah. So anytime they tried to fix something. um, So they did an axillary fem-fem bypass. They repaired my aorta. uh, They did a skin graft. They, um had to figure out a way to close my abdomen. Uh, So they borrowed tissue from uh, my leg to, you know, try to close my abdomen. They couldn't close it. Uh, So, yeah, it was, you know, kind of like a snowballing effect. Um, But when that was happening, the vascular surgeon said there's something wrong with her connective tissue. And that was when they did the genetic test. So that genetic test obviously came back positive for vascular Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which does cause weak connective tissues because of faulty collagen. Yes. And, you know, I was, you know, in the SICU at the time. um, And when my family read about this, when they received the genetic results, uh, it just made so much sense to them. It was without a doubt. I checked every single box of, you know, easy bruising, thin hair, thin lips, uh, short stature, just every single item um, was on that list of symptoms. So it kind of all made sense. So how did you Uh, feel when, when you got that back and it did make sense? So everybody knew about it prior to me even waking up in the hospital. Um, I was put under a, um, like a surgical coma, I guess it's called, Mm -hmm. um, for a long time. And I was 
intubated and everything. When I finally did wake up, um, I remember my dad told me right away. Um, of course, I had I woke up not knowing why I was even in a hospital or how much time had passed or, you know, everybody was dealing with so much stuff. And I was kind of like asleep the whole time um, fighting for, you know, so everyone knew about it before me, which is just like a funny thing to me. Um, But when I, when my dad finally did tell me, I, I guess, you know, it was just stress. You're so lucky to be alive Mm -hmm. Um, because for a long time they didn't know um, if I would even make it out of that hospital. And the vascular surgeons at one point told my parents to, you know, prepare for me not making through it. Um, So, of course, I was extremely grateful to be alive. But, you know, you, Katie, you handle it so well because you, I know, were just recent, more recently diagnosed than I was. So I think for a long time, it it took me just a really long time to see how different my life was going to be. Like, I didn't realize the magnitude of everything because mm-hmm. I didn't endure it. You know, I was, you know, on the surgical table. Um, so it took me a very long time. I mean, I remember you know, being in the hospital saying, I need to lesson plan because I'm going to go back to teaching this year. You know, (laughs) and it was like, I wasn't even sitting up in the hospital bed yet. And think, you know, so I think I was for a long time, even a year after I got out of the hospital, I was still primarily wheelchair bound. And I had this illusion in my mind that I would go back to work full time you know, and I would go back to being a teacher and being a coach and, you know, just doing everything as, you know, my life was destined to be. Uh, So I think, yeah, so I think it just really took me a long time to realize that, no, life is forever changed and it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, um, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely not at all the same. So what kind of changes have you had to make? So the biggest change for me um, is my real inability to walk as I once did. So um, the axillary fem-fem bypass that the surgeons did um, worked well for a short period of time, about a year after, um, so 2011, my bypass became occluded. And in patients without VEDS, the vascular surgeons would just go back in, you know, replace the tubing, um, and blood would go back to your legs. Um, so that, some... that fin-fin bypass is intended to allow blood flow to your legs. Could you explain that a little bit? Yes. So my, again, my understanding of it, I, I don't have a medical background, but my understanding is that because my, because of everything that went awry during surgery, um, and because my aorta tore, the doctors needed to get blood from my heart to my legs. Okay. Uh, so that's what the bypass 
would allow you to do. Um, when my bypass became occluded, there was a tiny, tiny percent of blood getting to my legs. Um, when it becomes, I asked my surgeon what happens when no blood goes to your legs, and he says it's a medical emergency and you're likely to lose your legs, mm-hmm. um, which is, is very scary knowing that that can happen at any time. Um, so so I, right now, um, the surgeons will not touch me unless it's a medical emergency. Um, so the vascular team said, you know, as long as you have a little bit of blood going to your legs, your body will compensate. So do the best you can and just try to walk a little more. You know, if you walk 10 steps one day, try to make, try to do 11 the next. Wow. So really for the past eight years, I've been building up from, you know, just walking around my house um, to walking to the mailbox and now you know I'm my the blood has found ways to get to my legs uh the body just learns to compensate but you know I can't run anymore um I can't walk you know I'd say a hundred feet without stopping some days are much worse than others you know some days I cannot you know grocery shop or something as simple as that Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's the, the worst, <laughs> I'd like to say it's the worst thing. Um, da- definitely the worst daily thing. Uh, you told me, I think that you were an athlete when you were younger. Yes. So that's um, a huge change, right? Yeah. You know, and even, yeah, from, from, you know, I used to run a mile a day to now I cannot walk a mile a day. Um, so, but like I said, I've, I've really built up, you know, I've really improved when I came out of the hospital, I was only using my wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and now I still, I still use it for, you know, if we went, I don't know, um, on vacation, I would use it. Or, you know, if we go somewhere, um, where there's not anywhere to rest, I'll bring that then. So that's amazing. I'm I'm so glad that you're able to walk some now. I mean that that's a crazy eight years of yeah. of building up to being able to do what you do today. Yeah, and you know, people when I tell this to people, and because I try to get the word out there about beds, um, and there's just so much to explain, and people. <laughs> don't really understand because they'll see me, you know, they'll see me grocery shopping or they'll see me, you know, doing errands and they don't, they just don't understand that, you know, yeah, if I'm asked to walk 40 more feet, I may not be able to do it. Um, so there's definitely that like invisible illness aspect of it as well. Yeah. That's a huge deal, especially because you're, how old are you now? Um, I'm 31 now. So do people ask you at the grocery store if you need help or? No, um, I actually get the opposite. I get, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's, I, I think people are just, they don't realize um, younger people. Uh, people say I look a lot younger than 31. I don't feel younger. <laughs> <I get older. laughs> 
Um, but yeah, I think people are just curious when they see a younger person, um, you know, not able to do something. So, yeah. And now are you the only one in your family with this? Yes, I am. So, uh, at least to my knowledge, when, when the genetic results came back, uh, my mom immediately, uh, wanted to be tested. Um, I have two sisters through on my mom's side. Um, we were, were raised as sisters, but they're biologically my half sisters. Uh, so my mom needed to get tested to make sure that they were okay. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, we have so many of the same symptoms, uh, pale, thin, you know, lobeless ears, uh, thin nose, thin lips. She's very petite. Uh, when her results came back negative, her response was, are you sure? We, we just thought that she, if anyone would have it and they said, we're a hundred percent sure she, you do not have it. Um, so the symptoms can also be misleading as well. Um, we, we thought that, or not the symptoms, the uh, features. Mm-hmm. Um, so she does not have it. But also she never had a major episode, you know, and her health is, she, she's never had the injuries that I have had. Um, she's had three normal pregnancies, which I know a lot of women with VEDS don't have Um, so there were things that we were like you know yeah she doesn't have it so yeah that's a very actually very similar with my mom she has very like old looking hands and Raynaud's and those kinds of things I share with her and so when she came back negative she was shocked yeah yeah okay so and we talked a bit about the symptoms that you had when you were younger um, mm-hmm. and one of those was your hair right yeah so when I was a teenager I'd say I started noticing hair loss and for a woman you know for a female teenager mm-hmm. it's such a traumatic thing <laughs> my mom has beautiful thick hair my two younger sisters beautiful thick hair and I until that point had thick hair and my my parents took me to dermatologists and they said stress and I (laughs) thought that that was very unusual because I was a teenager so I was just as stressed as any other teenager about (laughs) things um and you know it was something so cosmetic that it bothered me very much. So again, my parents took me to more dermatologists. One dermatologist was actually, again, close to findings out, you know, something greater, like a collagen disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, One dermatologist said, well, it's not that your hair is falling out. It's just that you know, if the average person loses three hair, three hairs a day and regrows two, you're losing three hairs a day and regrowing one. Oh, okay. So, you know, back in, I mean, this is probably early 2000s when I was a teenager. 
um, you know, internet search, but there wasn't information out there. So I was very close to like finding that I had a collagen issue going on. But again, um, it was more like, it's not a big deal. You know, it's maybe it's hormones, maybe it's stress. And I remember my parents were like, Bridget, don't be stressed. (laughs) You know, Um, so, but yeah, it just made it worse. But yeah, um, so I, you know, again, being a teenager, I, my, my parents bought me Rogaine for women, uh, you know, everything that would help. And I eventually just styled my hair differently. I just hoped that people wouldn't notice, but it was definitely noticeable to me. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've had the same feeling. I had a dermatologist tell me, oh, I've, I mean, I first went into the appointment and he said, before I do anything, I think that you need to figure out what's going on because your hair is falling out and X, Y, Z. I don't even want to touch you until you get this figured out. (laughs) And he's like, you need to just go to the store and get some Rogaine. And I just remember being mortified. Yeah. That somebody had actually noticed because it was something that I was self-conscious about. And everybody told me, no, it's not even noticeable. And then I go to the dermatologist and he's like, you need some Rogaine. Exactly. That's I mean, <laughs> only like my siblings and my very close friends. So yeah, I people notice it, and then you know, yeah, it's crazy. So, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Any other emergencies that you've had that that you want to mention? Um. Well, similarly to you, I had uh, a TIA. And that was post-2010. So I want to say that was about 2013, um, which was, you describe it perfectly. Um, I know we talked about, I mean, my experience was identical almost to yours. (laughs) Losing the ability to move, to speak um, for such a brief time. And the doctors not could not for certain say it was a blood clot or... Um, you know, anything else, but that was one of the most (laughs) scary episodes that I've had that I've been aware of. Um, Do you want to tell me about that episode? So uh, I'd woken up early to, I had a job substituting that morning Mm -hmm. and it was, I felt normal um, and I went to use the bathroom and you know, I was in the bathroom and then all of a sudden I just felt like very floppy. Um, I couldn't move my arms. I couldn't move my neck. I went out to scream. I called out to scream and nothing came out, just like mumbling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up, you know, wiping something, you know, moving my arm so that I would make enough noise that my husband who was sleeping in the next room would hear. Um, So he got up, ran, um, you know, to me. I don't remember him lifting me out of the bathroom onto our living room couch. Um, And then by the time the EMTs came, I had regained some consciousness and 
you know, knew where I was, but there is a brief time period where I have no recollection. I was, I remember trying to fight it and trying to say like, just hang in there, you know, like Mm -hmm. you're not going to like die from this. I just, I remember saying if I can just not, you know, lose, you know, if I can just keep some of my senses, I can fight through this. Um, so and at this point, when you had the TIA, you had the diagnosis of beds. Correct. So um, I live in upstate New York and, you know, a pretty rural area. And, um, you know, the EMTs and they all know of my condition. And there's no question I'm not going to the small local hospital. I'm going to, um, it's about an hour and change drive uh, to the major medical center that diagnosed me and can handle beds. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if I have, you know, if I, if I have to fly there, my husband is not hesitant about that being the only place that treats me. That's good to have that kind of plan in place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's crazy how many similarities, like, talking like, to you that we've had. I know. I know. I just listen to your story, and I feel like we could be twins. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so pumped to talk to you because just from watching your videos, I said, like, Katie and I would, would be best friends because <laughs> she's truly the only person who has had these experiences, and has been on a similar journey and it's just, you know, you're one of my idols too. So it's wonderful. (laughs) It's just wonderful knowing that you are out there and fighting so hard. And I really admire that, you know, it's taken me eight years to kind of, there's been times where I've tried to either pretend I don't have it, you know, pretend I'm quote unquote normal. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's been times that I really wanted to do something and get involved and, you know, and that's been really hard for me. It's because I just feel like when I talk to everyday people about it, no one can understand. So I really admire that you got your diagnosis not that long, not truly not that long ago in your doing so much for awareness and, you know, advocacy. So that's really (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been, I was looking at the calendar and I think on the third, it will be a year for me. Wow. And I, you are just, it just speaks to who you are because a year post-diagnosis for me, I was not in, I was not, I guess, like in the right headspace to talk so candidly and bravely well it's a crazy diagnosis to get (laughs) I remember trying to explain to people you know my arteries can just rupture or whatever and like I would sneeze and I'd be like oh my gosh (laughs) is it gonna rupture because I sneeze too hard (laughs) exactly yeah it's so hard to explain to people and and have that kind of connection with somebody who can also understand that fear and mm-hmm. that's why it's so good to talk to somebody else with this I think because you get it 
Yeah, and and truly what it means that when we say our arteries can tear. Like, I feel like everyday people don't understand really the magnitude of how bad that is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, your arteries supply blood to everything. You yeah. know, your, your whole vascular system is so important to maintaining things like walking yeah. that you weren't able to do for so long and that you're still working, working towards, you know, a normal amount of being able to walk. Mm-hmm. So yeah. after eight years, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So I admire you for, you know, keeping on the fight. Oh, That's amazing. Thank you. That's amazing. And I really appreciate you talking to me today. And I look forward to just talking to you in general more often. <laughs> yeah. And just having this like friendship, like bond. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely, I think, going to be a good bond here because <laughs> like I said, you know, like you said, I said, you really don't meet anybody else with this. Yeah. And the, the story is, is very similar and the struggles are, are very similar. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. Oh, thank you. And I so appreciate you. <laughs> thank you again. All right. So this was Staying Connected. And this is Katie. I had Bridget here today. I really appreciate you guys tuning in to listen and We'll hopefully have a new episode coming soon. Uh, Thanks again. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you.